Bill, people are mad, mad. They, they are mad. They are offended. And I, I don't think you have to pay super close attention to find out specifically even what they are furious about at this moment. Are you kidding me here? What? I mean, this is absolutely atrocious. I got a plan for you, Brandon Staley. It's called a punt. That's where the rubber meets the road on analytics. It is still football. It is still a human-driven game. And there are so many factors that can never be quantified. And I don't want to hear this. Remember, they lost their child at the playoffs, the very last game of the season. Mm -hmm. You don't make a couple of those decisions if you Brandon Staley, a rookie head coach at the time. You probably in the playoffs last Mm -hmm. year. You got the number two. I love it. Analytics says that you hit papers (laughs) if you go for it. Oh, really? Analytics know anything about having a backup quarterback in or anything else? Anybody with a brain can tell you? Pablo, all those people make more money than I do, so they're probably right. (laughs) But hold on, Bill, because we have summoned you here because the economics of you aside. Yes. The reputation that you have earned is that of the smartest and most data-fluent NFL analyst in this entire industry, in the entire world, I would dare argue. Mm -hmm. Which just means that all of these people are also effectively mad at, at you. Well, just because they make more money than me does not mean they think I should make any money at all, Pablo. So (laughs) I think if anybody is ruining football right now, it's not the Steelers. It's not the Texans. No. It's me, Bill Barnwell. To so many people right now, the football world just feels upside down because for decades, jocks and nerds were essentially kept apart, right? The former group ruled the NFL with their iron, dirt-covered fists out in the open. And the latter group mostly remained inside whatever locker they got stuffed in. But as we continue to chronicle on this podcast... The world is changing, at times radically and often very uncomfortably, because big business has become more tech-savvy, more numerate, more ruled by analytics. And so has the NFL, especially in those moments when an in-game decision seems to matter most. So today, we ask Bill Barnwell to bridge that gap and truly demystify the worldview that he embodies. And he makes us smarter about the games that are probably going to infuriate us this weekend. I'm Pablo Torre. It's Friday, October 14th. This is ESPN Daily. So, Bill, what I want to do at the very top of this segment here is something that's really rare in general, but especially in this conversation, which is just to find the terms that we're actually all arguing about. This is actually the key, I think, to this debate that is ripping apart football. So how would you define quote-unquote analytics just in the first place? Oh, no. Yeah, we're doing it, Bill. We're doing it. Okay. When we talk about analytics, we're using the wrong word. Mm. I think the word we should use is evidence. Yes. At the end of the day, when it comes to the conversations we're having here about game management, about making decisions on game day, about coaches 
looking flummoxed while percentages flash up on the TV screen. (laughs) That's based on evidence. It's based on what's happened over thousands of NFL games over the past few decades. To get the best estimate of each team's chances of winning or losing in a given situation. And then taking that evidence from history and how frequently teams succeed, given each spot on the field, given the time, given all these different variables, estimating what the best thing to do on a fourth down or a two-point conversion is. Because history tells us there's more evidence favoring one idea than the other. So yes, the next time, Pablo, you are listening to a game and you hear someone who is also better paid than I am say, (laughs) the analytics say, try substituting the evidence says and see how that conversation might be frustrating. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is, I mean, Bill, you've already hit upon my favorite political cause in sports, which is <laughs> which is language-driven fundamentally, right? I mean, yes. analytics, let's be honest here, analytics sounds sophisticated. It oh, sounds yeah. fancy, exclusive. It sounds like it's really only accessible to people with fancy degrees. And I feel like sometimes the language here is actually underrated. I feel like evidence actually, Bill, it might even be too triggeringly inaccessible. <laughs> like my personal vote here, I think is just for the word information as as the new word. Like, I, I understand that the Sloan Sports Information Conference sounds a lot less fancy, but I feel like that's probably actually more accurate in terms of describing what these coaches are going to have to assess. It also turns the acronym into SSIC, which uh, <laughs> just, just sounds wrong in some strange way. <laughs> and I think even when you talk to people, or at least maybe analytically friendly people. Yeah, informationally curious, let's call them. (laughs) That makes it sound like they're going on Craigslist to find out the information about football, Pablo, which I don't recommend people to. (laughs) Bill's list, correct. (laughs) Oh, no, that is not canon. (laughs) Bill's list is not canon. But I do think there is this sort of like straw man conversation happening about models and about what they account for and don't account for. And I think that doesn't lend itself to very detailed analysis of what actually is happening, both from the perspective of what NFL teams should be doing and what NFL teams are thinking about doing from the analytics side or from the information side when it comes to making these fourth down decisions. Yeah, so explain what's actually happening here because what we see, again, are the numbers flashing, the coaches looking either stupid or unfairly smart. And so what is the approach for how a team builds a model and then uses it? Okay, so I I can't speak to every single team because I have not talked to every team. Other teams have different ways of doing something. I have not worked directly for a team. I've done some consulting. Yes. But I will give you a broad framework for how these things are approached. They're using some combination of win probability and expected points-based models. So let me try and just contextualize this really quick. Please. Uh, These are all totally fake numbers. So please don't remember them. They're not important. They will not count. They're like, whose line is an anyway numbers where they don't count for absolutely anything at all. But (laughs) But uh, Wayne Brady is about to come in with a real banger off of them. Yeah. Wayne Brady, very analytically inclined when it came to winning on whose line is it anyway? Another yes. topic for another podcast. Is Pablo. Wayne Brady going to have to compute a bitch? <laughs> is the question everyone is wondering as they listen to you now. I, I don't know if I was allowed to go there, but you can't visit your show. <laughs> Take like 
a team that's a three-point favorite. They're in the first quarter. It's 0-0. There's seven minutes to go. It's fourth and one. And they're in no man's land. They're on their 40-yard line, let's say. Mm, A standard scenario. History suggests they might win 52% of the time. Again, a totally made-up number. Still plenty of stuff to happen in that game. And there's no way you would think about it from that perspective as a person, but a computer can compute. These are all the different scenarios. This is how often, how many possessions each team are likely to have left. And that's what the win expectancy is at that point of the game. Yeah, and just to clarify here, this is a team heading into making this decision on fourth down, yes. whether to go for it or not. They're considering the sweep of what has happened over the course of football history, given this exact scenario. Yes, and I mean, to be fair, I don't know that they're considering games from 1955. I don't think black and white football <laughs> is factoring into this discussion, but maybe they're taking the last 15 years or 20 years of data. And we have a pretty good sample size to work with over thousands of of fourth downs. So Mm. we have a decent idea, a pretty solid idea to start with of what their chances are of winning if they go for it on fourth and one and convert. Since we know, okay, they might get two yards, they might get three yards. They might be like the Raiders on Monday night and get a long touchdown pass to Devontae Adams. Carr airs it out down the middle for Adams. Got it. Inside the 10. Devontae, touchdown. What a play on fourth down. All those different possibilities are built in for them succeeding if they go for it. Likewise, if they go for it and fail, we know this other team, this opposing team, is going to have great field position, a short field to go and score on. Yes. They're going to be in an advantageous opportunity. So we know the downside. And of course, we know what will happen if they punt. It's going to be a less imposing situation. The other team is going to have pretty mediocre field position, but they get the ball and the ball is valuable. And we know what their win expectancy is going to be from their situation. And so... We have all that data, so we can estimate whether it's better for a team to go for it or punt. And usually, on fourth and one, it's typically better to go for it than it is to punt. So we'll get back to the idea of the trend line here suggesting more aggression than teams are historically comfortable with. Mm -hmm. But what should a good analytics slash evidence slash information driven (laughs) team be doing here? What are they giving their head coach? Because I know this is an operation that is beyond just the one man. Yes. So teams can't run those models in real time with a computer and give that data to a coach. It does not really work that way in the NFL, unfortunately. Mm. Teams are not permitted to use computers. The only technology they have are the famous now, as a weapon for Ken Dorsey to toss around, (laughs) league of supplied Surface tablets that don't have any access to the internet. You cannot check Twitter from your Surface tablet during the game. So how do the, uh, to quote Dave Gettleman here unironically, how do the computer folks, how do the computer guys actually help a coach if they can't actually communicate with them via a computer? It starts during the week. Really, it starts during the offseason, but during the game week process, you're having a conversation with your coach. Usually, I would imagine it's on Friday, maybe it's on Tuesday or Thursday. It doesn't really matter when it is. But at some point during the week, for informationally inclined teams, <laughs> you're having your analytics people have a conversation with your head coach about whatever their models are saying this week. They're feeding the coach basically best practices for some common situations. And th- those best practices that are shared by the computer guys with the football guys How do they present that information in a way that helps the coach make real decisions? So an NFL information collective or analytics group, 
uh, depending on what term you want to use. That's right. Is giving their coach two numbers. And it might be easier to explain this from the perspective of a coin flip because we're going to talk about expected value very quickly. Finally, ESPN Daily explains probability theory, Bill. Explain (laughs) it to me also just to be very clear here. Yes. As two people who know exactly what they're talking about here, (laughs) we will will engage in this conversation. Sound of nodding hard. Let's take a classic coin flip example here. Let's say you're betting a dollar on a coin to come down heads. Let's say this is a real coin. There's no gimmicks. We'll leave that part aside. When heads comes, let's say you win $10. Mm. But when tails comes, you lose $1. Now, obviously, that is a great bet because the average probability of that situation is that you're going to win that bet 50% of the time. Yes, the league average rate of success in this case is 50%. Exactly. But when you win, you win $10 and you only lose $1 when you lose. So you only have to succeed a little over 10% of the time to make a profit. And that's the number NFL teams are giving to their coaches to justify going for it. If you can succeed a little over 10% of the time, it still makes sense, even if you're going to miss a certain percentage of the time. Right, because even if you're going to lose and there's a 50% chance of you losing the coin flip, the rewards, the upside of getting heads is so great that it justifies the risk of not having it turn up in your favor. Yes, and to be fair, NFL situations are just a tiny bit more complicated and have just a slightly less obvious example of expected value than coin flips. Right, but this is the upside. This is the promise of of taking the risk. And that's why it's important to know how successful the league is in general, that first number, and what, in fact, your personal profit might be in that second number, given the odds at hand. Yes. But after the break, Bill, I do need to look at the other side of the coin, as it were, at the criticisms of the mathematical approach that might actually be fair. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, Your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home some huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. So one of the more common criticisms of information slash analytics is that this stuff is not just dogmatic, but also kind of narrow-minded. I mean, there's this sense of like, just flip the goddamn coin and bet heads or else you're you're this idiot caveman. But in fairness to the cavemen slash football guys here, you did allude to the sheer complexity of football before. And, and there are obviously so many other variables in any given play that a model might not be able to account for, right? That's totally fair. And and certainly, no model is going to account for every single variable. But teams with good models are accounting for all kinds of things. Those win expectancy models 
are built, yes, are, they're underpinned by the average rates of success for average teams in each situation on a certain yard line. But further than that, we know some offenses and defenses are better than others. So let's say an offense you're facing in a given week is 10% better than a typical offense. Well, you can plug that in and that's going to change your probabilities. It's going to change the expected points for each drive. It's going to factor into each decision you make over the course of the game. So it's helpful to adjust your model, I presume, to know when you're playing the Bills versus uh, the Texans. Yes, absolutely. And you can account for your ability relative to the other team. If you're a significant underdog, that changes your chances of winning before the game even begins. So a lot of the public models, for example, will use that as a baseline for determining some of the decisions for what teams should do. Mm. If the other team has a great run defense, and let's say you have significant evidence that they're going to be tough to run on in short yardage. Well, a good team's plugging that in to say, okay, we might typically succeed 50% of the time on fourth and one, but maybe what if we only succeed 40% of the time? What if we think we would only succeed 25% of the time on fourth and one? That's going to change your decision-making. And even though not every public model is going to account for that stuff, any organization that has people working on this full-time are going to have that heading into a Sunday. So what you're saying is that the good teams try to be self-aware, whether they're the underdog in the situation, which would inform whether they need to take more risks than usual in order to be more likely to win this game. Yes, absolutely. If I were playing one-on-one with LeBron James, would I rather play to one or to 100? The answer is one. Correct. Because I might be able to chuck something up over my head and throw it high in the sky and Man. Well, maybe LeBron gets distracted. Maybe he gets a phone call and I just sneak in a layup and win the game that way. <laughs> I'm just sinking into the visual of you arcing a Steph Curry three over LeBron James. I'm very concerned about what the AI art is going to be for this episode <laughs> based on that comment. But if I play LeBron to 100, he's going to murder me. So that is not yeah. going to work. So in a scenario where if you're a big underdog, for example, and you have a two-point play like the Giants had against Tennessee at the end of their game in week one, you might want to have the game come down to one final play as opposed to having a game stretch into overtime and having to play for 10 more minutes because a huge favorite like Tennessee might be able to make the most out of that advantage over a longer period of time. But Pablo, here's the thing that I think as someone who wants to understand all elements of football, who wants to be all-knowing, a football god, <laughs> like my similarly initialed Patriots head coach friend Bill Belichick, mm -hmm. analytics will never account for absolutely everything. No model is ever going to say, oh, well, your right guard has a slightly strained hamstring. The field is 3% slipperier than normal. Mm. Is slipperier a word, by the way? I think it's, it's slipperier. This is a math conversation, not a word conversation, Pablo. <laughs> and so a play is going to get blown up by a defensive tackle. Yes, that is absolutely true. And no model is ever going to account for that. But you know what else can account for that, Pablo? Coaching. <laughs> no one ever has a playbook that adjusts for every single variable on a football field. Yeah. No coach drawing up X's and O's in April before the season has plays that account for every single possible defensive tackle they're going to face, even though one of those tackles is Aaron Donald. <laughs> and you're not going to run stuff the same way or have the same success running on first and 10 on a typical inside zone play against Aaron Donald as you would versus a random defensive tackle from the Texans. That's right. That is never in a playbook. And nobody, Pablo, 
is saying that schemes or X's and O's are ruining football. Nobody is throwing <laughs> a temper tantrum on Twitter about coaches daring to call plays, even though last year in the most exciting game of the season, Chiefs Bills in the playoffs, literally the end of the game for the Chiefs on offense was Travis Kelsey going to Patrick Mahomes during a timeout and saying, eh, I'm going to get open. You just figure it out. <laughs> that doesn't mean you should never have X's and O's. I love the hot take that coaches calling plays is a disgrace to football. Pablo, how do we play football growing up? We play in the dirt. Mm. We draw stuff up in the dirt. And that's how we call plays. Coaches are just getting in the way, rooting things with their newfangled paper. That's right. X's knows. Players are not X's knows. They're not just binary things. They're people. The only whiteboard, the only tablet I want is the back of my goddamn hand. That's what I want to spike on the ground when I'm angry about something. <laughs> not a tablet, Pablo. Just a fist. Punching a hole into the earth. Just the fist of antiquated thought, pushing anything progressive into the mud. No, of course not, Pablo. Coaches use scheme and X's and O's give their players rules and concepts to optimize their chances of succeeding. And sometimes special players improvise and break all of those rules, and it doesn't matter because they're special players and they do special things. The same thing is true for analytics. They give coaches a framework for how to approach a situation or a decision. They're not infallible. They don't help you make the right decision every time. They're not going to make you a great team on their own just because Josh Allen does something that nobody would ever draw up on a playbook. It doesn't mean we should get rid of coaching. Just because <laughs> Tom Brady falls to the sixth round of the draft, it doesn't mean that scouting as a whole is a waste of time and nobody should bother scouting. And just because an analytically inclined decision fails does not mean that the entire conceit of using history and evidence to help you make decisions is a waste of time. But what analytics is telling us is that historically, teams do seem to have been too conservative, right? Like they're too risk averse in terms of how they've made these decisions on fourth down or whether to kick the extra point or go for two, right? I mean, that is essentially why analytics, quote unquote, is synonymous with going for it. Yes, certainly coaches are based on what they know. And what coaches know is passed down from the prior coaches who they learned from. And that is based on what worked in football about 70 or 80 years ago when they were playing a very different game. So those baselines for what might have made sense, even without data from a coaching perspective, is antiquated. It is outdated. It does not fit the modern game and how successful teams are in modern situations. So analytics, whether it's using data, whether it's using information, whatever you want to call it, typically says that coaches are going for it less frequently than they actually should. And so because of the sort of learned behavior they have from what they were looking at as kids and what they learned from their prior coaches, who usually were their parents based on the amount of nepotism <laughs> that happens in football, coaches think even the slightest shift to the status quo is a earth-shattering difference when actually, even now, when coaches are more aggressive than ever before, they're still usually too conservative by what history says they should be doing on fourth downs. But the other criticism that I hear about being data-driven, now that it is more popular to, yeah, be driven by these numbers, is how that approach just underrates the human, the psychological effect of these decisions. I, I refer here to the cost, Bill, of taking a risk, but then losing, and, and then suffering the deflation, the momentum shifts, the impact of all of that. I'm not a former player. 
So I cannot speak to the psychological boost that is happening when teams go forward and fail. I have to imagine it's pretty fun to see bad things happen to the other team. But what I will say is that in places where it seems like there would be a boost, we don't really see evidence of that historically. So one thing I tested was looking at what happened to teams when they started drives inside their own five-yard line. Because of course, that's a disadvantageous situation regardless of how you do it. But there should be a big difference between when you start a drive after a punt inside the five-yard line or whether you start a drive after you've stopped the other team on downs with a fourth down stop inside your own five-yard line. You would figure you would score more often and score more points on average if you got the ball back after a fourth down stop. That isn't true. Teams score at basically identical rates in those situations. Mm. So obviously, getting the ball back is great either way, but you don't get any actual boost from having it be a more exciting path for your team. And Pablo... Even if you do do something aggressive and it fails, we've seen plenty of examples of teams failing, doing something unconventional, and still having things go their way afterwards. This is what brings us back to today, right? Because we've seen examples of exactly that. Teams trying to do something different and not converting, but still ultimately getting what they wanted out of it this past week alone. I mean, this was the story of the Raiders-Chiefs game. The Raiders, they try for this two-point conversion in the game on Monday night. Mm -hmm. They hand to Jacobs, and he, no signal, they didn't get it. And the Chiefs still lead by one. And they still get the ball back with, like, plenty of time to drive for that field goal. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, the Chargers went for it on a fourth and one, which seemed more like a fourth and two last week, seemed to have blown the game. And they still won in the long run. (laughs) Every team who goes forward and fourth down and fails deals with some sort of momentum shift. But even given that that happens, history tells us over the course of all the momentum shifts over the last 20 or 30 or 40 years in NFL history, it's still often better to go for it in those situations than it is to punt. Well, what's so funny to me about this, Bill, as somebody who has been a process truster, is that I have been told that results are actually the only thing that matters, right? This is the story of human nature. This is the human condition. This is the learned behavior that all of us have inherited, which is to say that a win is supposed to, in retrospect, justify whatever decision you made because a win is the only thing that matters, as Vince Lombardi and many other imitators of Vince Lombardi have now told us. (laughs) But in the Chargers example, they got the win, and yet there is still the backlash. And I'm curious what that reveals to you about the dynamic that's also culturally underneath all of these decisions being made. I think we watch sports in different ways now, right? How much of not just your Sixers coverage, but Sixers coverage on the whole has been about the possibility of eventually building a team that might eventually be good enough to compete for a championship as opposed to actually competing for a championship. I think we Mm. focus more on that process from day one, from the ground level, than we did 30 or 40 years ago. And I think that's not true of all fans and certainly not all players. I mean, look at what's happened over the past couple of weeks. Marcus Peters seemed to be shouting at John Harbaugh after a relatively controversial decision helped lead to a Ravens loss. On Twitter, Keenan Allen, who wasn't playing in the Chargers game, was furious at Brandon and Staley for going for it on fourth and short and almost losing that game. And I think we're seeing from different perspectives, fans or players in some cases, 
getting upset about coaches doing an atypical or not traditional thing. But the thing I would say is this, Pablo. Like you said, winning is all that matters. And I have never heard a post-game press conference or a locker room speech or an obituary for a coach who gets fired (laughs) where it said he lost, but at least he punted in the situations where he was (laughs) supposed to punt. The best thing to do is do whatever's going to maximize your chances of winning. And we know, again, based on history, that in many cases, being more aggressive than NFL coaches typically are on a week-to-week basis is going to lead to more wins, even if there are situations like the one we saw for the Ravens in week four and for a moment for the Chargers on Sunday. Yeah, RIP Matt Rule. At least he (laughs) didn't go for it. Mm -hmm. So what we're settling on here is this political approval question. This brings us to the top of what we talked about. It's the backlash. It's the people getting mad. It is easier to avoid the anger by just being risk averse. That is what the incentives seemingly in the discourse are sort of leading us towards. All of which makes me think, Bill, like, is a head coach relying on these models? Is a head coach relying on analytics slash data slash information slash evidence here? Is it kind of like a musician and auto-tune? Is it kind of like this device that can help you make you do your job in these hard, high degree of difficulty spots better? but it's almost dangerous to rely on it too much to the point where you do seem less human in the process. Trying to figure out who the Kesha of this this, uh, metaphor is. I guess it's Ron Rivera. Right around 2011, I think they were both popular around that time. (laughs) He had Cam Newton. He had the best short yardage weapon in football, an absolute force who had been just dominating even at the college level on third and one and fourth and one. And the Panthers loved using Cam in short yardage and he was very successful on third and one. But when it got to fourth and one, even in situations where all they needed was one yard to seal up the game and go to kneeling, Rivera kept punting. And that (laughs) is frustrating because it's not just that the math is in your favor, but you have the perfectly constructed team to succeed in that exact situation. And the only thing holding you back is the fear of failure and the history of the status quo of what coaches are supposed to do. It took Rivera nearly getting fired. It took multiple losses over several seasons in games where his team punted on fourth and one, where they only needed a yard to win and then blew the game after punting for Rivera to turn into Riverboat Ron or Analytics Ron or whatever he was at the time. Yes, Coin Flipper Ron. Coin Flipper Ron. It took multiple examples of things going horribly wrong for him to simply trust his team on fourth down the same way he trusted his team on third down. But speaking of things that may go horribly wrong, Bill, coming up, we get to some actual football this weekend. Delicious meat, nutritious. In the snack that packs a real protein punch, wonderful pistachios, one of the highest protein nuts out there. Each one-ounce serving has six grams of protein, giving you over 10% of your daily value. Trust me, I've been eating them like there's no tomorrow all week. Wonderful pistachios also come in a variety of flavors and sizes, perfect for enjoying with your family and friends or taking them with you on the go. And you, like me, are on the go a lot. Taking the kids to school, hopping from meeting to meeting, shopping for groceries, whatever it may be. 
Well, the good news is not only are Wonderful Pistachios a complete protein providing all nine essential amino acids, they're also great for all your adventures. So whether you're a pistachio purist who loves cracking open every nut or you prefer the convenience of no-shells pistachios, Wonderful Pistachios has got you covered. Grab Wonderful Pistachios and elevate your snack game today. Visit WonderfulPistachios.com to learn more. Now let's talk about the play of the week. The pressure to follow up Hypnotic and Cognac weighing heavy on the team. Hypnotic was in the cup, blue, and ready for the play. And boom, Añejo Tequila came in with a smooth assist to Hypnotic's tropical fruit finish. Shaken, strained, poured. It was green and good. The playmaking splash shifted the tempo. Another great cocktail from the Hypnotic team. Every season is hypnotic and tequila season. Hypnotic liqueur, Bardstown, Kentucky, 17% alcohol by volume. Hypnotic reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. All right, Bill. So we're getting to the actual games that we're about to watch this weekend. And you already referenced the matchup that is... It's it's the one that we've all been looking forward to for like 10 months now mm-hmm. since the greatest playoff game ever, as it has been uh, triggeringly known <laughs> to our resident Bills fan, producer Aaron Vale. But just to recap here, right? It was Arrowhead. It was January. Buffalo was trailing the Chiefs by four with about a minute left. They drive. They score what looks to be the game-winning touchdown. First and 10 from the Kansas City 19-yard line. Josh takes shotgun snap. Looks. Looks, steps up, has time, fires to the end zone. Are you kidding me? Unbelievable. The Bills get the lead back again. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. They go ahead 36-33 with 13 seconds left on the clock. But over the next two plays and 44 yards, we we get just a classic Deus Ex Mahomes scenario. Mahomes takes a snap on the near hash. Goes down the middle to Kelsey, 35 down to the 31. Timeout called by the Chiefs down a 49-yard try at three seconds to go in the game in regulation. And yes, the game-tying kick ends up being good by the Chiefs. We get overtime. The Chiefs win that coin toss. But we get this game-winning sudden-death drive by Kansas City as a result that was so easy that it did feel, in the end, unfair. Mahomes looks to throw it. Pump faking right side. He wants it. A comeback cut. It is caught by Kelsey. Touchdown, Kansas City. One of the greatest duos in the history of the National Football League. And the Chiefs have won this incredible divisional playoff game in overtime. And so this was, in fact, the reason why postseason overtime rules have now changed. But I remind you, Bill, that while we are in Arrowhead, we are in the regular season. And and so what is different this time around between these two teams specifically? Well, I assume they've each gone through a lot of therapy for their various postseason losses, which was admittedly needed after both those teams lost in crushing fashion last postseason. But it also kind of feels like both these teams were preparing for this game the entire offseason. I think they each know whether it's at least once in the regular season or perhaps twice in the postseason they're going to have to get past the other one. And so they built their teams this offseason to try and counter what the other was able to exploit during those two games last season. Take the Bills, for example. They only sacked Patrick Mahomes twice on 46 dropbacks. Patrick Mahomes has been the best quarterback in the league against the Blitz since he took over as Kansas City's starter. So what do the Bills do? Well, they go out and get Von Miller, hoping to build a defense that can win without needing to blitz as the Rams did against the Bengals in the Super Bowl. Meanwhile, the Chiefs trade Tyreek Hill 
and they use some of their newfound draft capital to build the sort of defense that won't allow Gabriel Davis to run up and down the entire field at Arrowhead for four touchdowns. They use three first and second round picks on defensive end George Karloftis, safety Brian Cook, and cornerback Trent McDuffie, although McDuffie is on IR. They add more speed in the secondary by swapping out legendary safety Tyron Matthew for Justin Reed. And they import two new pass rushers, one of which is Karloftis, the other is Carlos Dunlap. The Bills had their wide receivers simply run past Kansas City's cornerbacks last season. The Chiefs are hoping they can chase down Josh Allen and avoid the big plays the Bills thrived with against the Chiefs a year ago. But we're coming off of this Monday night game, Bill, where Devontae Adams, until he ran into Hunter Renfro, literally, was running past that secondary, right? I mean... The Chiefs just narrowly escaped with their lives against the Las Vegas Raiders. So what did that game teach you about the way we should understand this Chiefs team in the present tense? I think they're still sort of figuring out what they can do well. Uh, They're certainly, the highs are really high. I mean, the Chiefs at their best, just like the Bills at their best, are an extraordinary, seemingly unstoppable football team on both sides of the ball. But... On offense, they can be sloppy at times. It seems like every time they try to give Clyde Edwards a layer of the football, it's a play they've never practiced and just decided to <laughs> run in real time for the first time altogether. But we also know they can be great. The Bills have had stretches where they look sloppy. Well, they've had four turnovers, for example, against the Rams. They've had two turnovers each of the last two weeks against the Ravens and Steelers. Josh Allen can make mistakes with the football. He missed an open Stefan Diggs for a touchdown last week. We also know how devastating they can be when everything is clicking and how they can make yes. magic happen out of seemingly nothing. So this could be a game where there's fits and starts where both teams are punching and look kind of mediocre. Then we could have a quarter like the fourth quarter from that playoff game where it looked like the entire field was on fire. So, Bill, I want to turn our attention to the division that has flummoxed, embarrassed us uh, the most because the NFC East ban. I mean, this is our favorite punching bag. And yet here are the 4-1 and Giants. Here are the 5-0 and Eagles. Here are the 4-1 and Cowboys. And so on the brink of the Eagles and the Cowboys playing each other on Sunday, it's the natural question. How did we get this so wrong, right? Like, how how is the NFC East just the best division in football? It's very troubling, Pablo. They just what are we going to turn to for for jokes now? The NFC East is a combined fourteen and six, eleven and three, the best record outside of their division in football. And, and I think there is just a lot of positive talent flowing into this division. The Giants made a major coaching upgrade by hiring Brian Dable and firing Joe Judge. Yes. Saquon Barkley obviously looks like a totally different human being from the guy we saw over Joe Judge's two seasons with the Giants. And that has been a difference maker for them. Mm. The Eagles and Cowboys have been kind of been built the way they had been before that disastrous 2020 season. But a lot of their players have gotten better and they've drafted really well. The Eagles have brought in Devontae Smith. And the Cowboys, of course, have brought in Micah Parsons, who has been an absolute difference maker for that defense. And Micah Parsons, that is the name that I am in awe of when it comes to the Cowboys and their defense. So is that the matchup? How to stop that guy that you think decides this game? Yes, absolutely. That is the matchup. That is a perfect (laughs) example, Pablo. Absolutely. 
because the Cowboys and Micah Parsons are a impossible matchup for teams with middling offensive lines. And wouldn't you know it, Pablo, the five teams the Cowboys have played this year, the Buccaneers, who had multiple starters go down up front, the Bengals, who are a disaster along their offensive line, the Giants, who are a work in progress up front, the Commanders, who are terrible at protecting Carson Wentz, and as we saw on Sunday, the Rams, who have had multiple retirements and injuries up front, and who had nobody capable of blocking Micah Parsons one-on-one. No. Even when the Rams slid their line to try and get extra protection and block Parsons that way, we saw Demarcus Lawrence and the other Cowboys linemen win one-on-one. Now, the Eagles, on paper, are a different beast altogether. Those are five of the worst lines in football. The Eagles have the best offensive line in the NFL. That is on paper. And the Eagles may not have their line on paper. Jordan Mailata, their excellent left tackle, missed last week's game. And they have been a totally different offense without Mailata on the field. When Jalen Hurts has Mailata, his average throw travels eight yards in the air downfield. 29% of his throws are at or behind the line of scrimmage. But without Mailata over the past week and a half, his average throw is half as far, 4.2 yards in the air. And 41% of his attempts have basically been screens at or behind the line of scrimmage. And on top of that, they lost Jason Kelsey, who might be the toughest man in the NFL when it comes to staying on the field for a few plays last week. And Jason Kelsey comes off the field, he is really struggling. So if they don't have Mylotta and they don't have Kelsey, that is a serious concern. But if Mylotta and Kelsey are on the field, that could be the opportunity for some real all 22 football porn. <laughs> yes, cannot wait to turn the lights off, Bill, and grind the hell out of this tape. Mm, a lot of things happen in those film rooms, Pablo, you don't want to be a part of. Yes, but I do want to pay for it on OnlyFans. Um, a totally different site that's just about football fans. But hold on. Okay. Because the film, actually, that has casual fans, the most excited is the stuff we've been seeing from Jalen Hurts. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, we've talked before. He has nine figures essentially riding on this season in terms of his next contract. So, Bill, what are you seeing here? How is he making the proverbial leap? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's making major strides in the spots where he was struggling during his first two seasons in the NFL. As a deep passer, last year, Hertz ranked 23rd in the NFL in QBR. This year, on those same deep passes, he's third in the NFL in QBR. Last season, on passes thrown between the numbers on the field, Hertz was 26th in the NFL in yards per attempt. This year, number one. Mm. Yes, getting A.J. Brown has helped. And Devontae Smith looks like he's leveling up each week and becoming a better NFL wide receiver. But Hertz is so much more decisive with the football, and his accuracy has improved each season as a pro. In his first year, when you take all the quarterbacks who threw at least 50 attempts, Jalen Hurts was 47th out of 48 passers in a stat ESPN calls adjusted completion percentage, which takes out the drops and the spikes and looks at what a quarterback does after adjusting for how deep their average pass is. Last year, in that same stat, Hertz improved from 47th to 26th. He was still below average. This year, he's 16th. So he's not an incredibly accurate passer, but he's made major strides, and he does so much well elsewhere that he can be an incredibly valuable quarterback just by being average 
when it comes to accuracy. And he's throwing more often. The Eagles thrived last year by taking the ball out of Hertz's hands as a passer right. and becoming one of the most run-heavy teams in football. But this year, they're throwing at a rate higher than league average in neutral situations. Hertz is shouldering more of the workload as a passer and honestly as a runner, and he's getting more efficient. And that is a scary combination for opposing defenses. And so this raises a question about the decisions being made, again, by the head coach, Bill, because as Jalen Hurts is figuring out how to be himself, so has Nick Sirianni, it feels like. I mean, we remember the presser, right? We remember his opening press conference, which everybody laughed at. And I laughed very loudly because it felt like this was a guy almost trying to imitate what he thought a coach should sound like. Next thing that's very important to me is that we build a smart football team. The first part of being smart is knowing what to do. We're going to... We're going, to know, we're going to have systems in place that are easier to learn, all right? Complicated to the defense or offense that they're going against or the special teams group they're going against, but easy for us to learn. Because when we can put that, because we, when we can learn our system and we can get good at our system, then our talent can take over. Less thinking equals talent take over, but we need to have systems in place and we will have systems in place to do so. Absolutely. It sounded like, a SNL sketch about what a coach would do during his opening press conference. And this is really going to hurt us as people in the punditry class who have to react to press conferences. I think that opening press conferences are not all that great of a measure of how good a coach is actually going to go. I mean, yes. This is disappointing to hear, admittedly. I understand. There are times where coaches are disasters. And they proved to be disasters over the long run. Adam Gase with the Jets. Joe Judge yeah. with the Giants. Those were terrible opening press conferences. And they were bad in pretty much exactly the same ways over the course of their tenures with those teams. But basing your feelings about a head coach on the opening press conference is kind of like it's kind of like deciding whether a meal is going to be good based on your first conversation with the waiter when they come to the table. <laughs> like, yes. If, if the waiter starts cursing at you, the food's probably going to be bad. And sometimes you're going to be right. Sometimes it's going to be a terrible meal and that coach is going to fail. But other times it's going to be a red herring and you're going to have a great meal and you're going to feel better about yourself as the meal goes along. And that is what happens in Philadelphia. As bad as that first press conference was, Nick Sirianni is making a lot of the players for the Eagles much better than the guys they were before he got there. Yeah, it's a good warning as we try to be more rigorous and more um, information-based in our thinking. But I don't think I'll ever get over the learned behavior of just being furious when the waiter is not writing down the order and is trying to prove that he too can essentially um, script up plays uh, on the back of his head. Pablo, you spent a lot of time dining in New York restaurants. I, I trust your instincts here. <laughs> Bill Barnwell, thank you for trusting my sense of the probabilities when it comes to what matters most. The expected value of me doing this podcast, Pablo, is still to be determined, but thank you. <laughs> thank you, sir. I'm Pablo Torre. This has been ESPN Daily, and our show is produced by Bradford Craig, Alexander Hyacinth, Mike Johns, Heather Lombardo, Ryan Antel, Mike Philbrick, Andy Tennant, Chris Tuminello, and Aaron Vale. Special thanks this week 
to Mike Drago, Andre Soto, Deontay Epps, Tyrus Ray, and Jackson Angelo. I'll talk to you Monday.